Good morning. I hadn't planned on doing this Sunday, but dear brother Josh had a lot on his plate. So I decided to go for it. Yesterday, part of what was on his plate is we had to go to a funeral for a young man that I was baptized with. He was 20 years my minor. I went in, and as I was heading to walk through, I heard a scream. I've never heard a scream of a broken-hearted mother, and I couldn't see this woman who was a dear sister to me, but I knew who it was. And immediately, my heart sank. I sat down and I waited, and Joss and Amanda came. We decided to walk through, and I was praying the whole time. I can't see this. I can't see this woman like this. I can't see this woman like this. And she starts crying again, and this time I can see her. And we're getting closer, and she stops. Again, I'm praying, I can't see this woman like this. I can't see this woman like this. And she looks at me and loses it again. And I just grab her, and I put her head right here, and I said, you can use mine. And I held her until she stopped again. I met her new husband. We had buried her first husband four years ago. Gave my condolences to him, his brother, his, the, the deceased brother and sister, and walked on through. Death is a part of life. I remember when my daughter was born, I held her just moments into her, this new life. I was looking at her. I don't know if I'm just messed up in the head, but as I was looking at her and I thought, as sure as she was just born, she's going to die. And I became sad. And I pray to God I'm not there to see it. We headed to the graveside where Josh was reading. We talked of our own <laughs> impending death and we lost Josh's father at a somewhat early age and his brother at a somewhat young age. And I told him, I was like, I can't, I would be lying if I said I haven't thought about what would happen if I lost you. And he told me to keep going. And that's okay. And I told him, I kind of like the arrangement that we have now, in that being that he does most of it. So... <laughs> There's that. We buried my mother-in-law in October. My wife got to spend a couple of weeks with her before she lost her. I just got to church. I got a phone call. She said, I'll call you right back. My brother called me and told me to pull over. I knew. Went and told Josh, I'm leaving. Drove straight to Florida. I used to be afraid of death. I didn't really think I would live past my 20s. 
and here I am almost 50. And I think, you know, my dad died of leukemia at, at 24. I was three years old, don't know, don't have a clue who he was. They told me he raced motorcycles, and I assume that's where I got my affection for all things motorized and my ignorance that stemmed from that. My granddad is 90 years old, and his mind is just as sharp as when he was 40 years old. And I think of those two scenarios, and my greatest fear now is that I'm going to be cursed with a long life because I've lived further than I thought I would. But death is something we all face. Job 14 says, man is born of a woman, is a few days, and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and fades away. Second Samuel, we shall surely die and become like water spilled on the ground. Psalm 89, what man can live and not see death? Death sometimes comes unexpectedly, and we don't have the time to say the things that we would like to say to those people that are dying. So I encourage you today to say those things while they're still here. Lost my grandmother of cancer 10 or 11 years ago. She called me, told me what was going on. Nine months later, she was gone, but I had nine months to love on her, to tell her all the things that I needed to say. And I consider it a blessing. Although she was struggling, we got to have those, that time together. Her last day, she was struggling. And when her mom died, one of her siblings went and told her mother, who had been bedridden for 10 years with arthritis and dementia, said, Mom, it's okay, you can go. I told my grandmother, Nanny, we're going to be okay, and I love you. Death is tragic. It's sad. Last week we learned that Jesus had just died. And the death of Jesus is debated as, as to the cause of his death, medically speaking, this heart failure asphyxiation or dehydration I think is one of them and nobody really knows but medically he died the real cause of his death is sin Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death he died because of sin at the point when the skies were darkened at the sixth hour Jesus had become the biggest sinner a lie, or probably that I ever lived, by imputation. Our sin was placed on him. It was from the sixth hour to the ninth hour that the wrath of God was poured out on him for our sin. He knew what sin, he knew sin, but was still sinless, taking the wrath of God. It was the first time that he had referred to his father in scripture as God he said my God my God why have you forsaken me 
and likely from all eternity, the first time he called the Father God. The only time in eternity that he was abandoned by the Father, not only abandoned, he was punished. We know and understand that that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he was pointing back to Psalm 22, but it was a real thing. God had forsaken him, punishing him for our iniquity. So Christ's death was earned. He's the only person that's ever, that's been still alive and, and known the wrath of God. Albeit for a short time, he was still alive, suffering that wrath. No other living person knows what that is. The irony is that he didn't earn it. We are the ones that put in the work. We, we, we earn those wages. And he did not have to die. In John 10, he chose to die. But in John 10, verse 17, says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father, this power to do what he wishes with his life was given to him by the father. He has total control over his life and his death. He even helped him along in this mock trial to, to speed it along so he could suffer this crucifixion, the most humiliating and the most excruciating death that any man could know, the most shameful. In verse 30, he says, he gave up his spirit. Jesus received the fruit of our labor. So today our text will be John 19, verses 31 until the end. If you are able, please stand with me as we give honor to God's word. This is the word of God. Therefore, it was the day, it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For those things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him who they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, 
who, came, who first came by, to Jesus by night also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen, with the spices and the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now the place where he is crucified, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus and the Jews, Jesus, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Merciful Father, as we go over this portion of your holy word, I just ask that you lend us the Holy Spirit, the one that resides in us, to illumine it to our hearts. Lord, bless the preaching of your word, this breaking of this bread of life. Lord, use me in spite of me. Have your will with us today. And it's the matchless name of Christ that we all pray. And all of God's children said. Amen. So it says this is the day of preparation, a.k.a. the day before the Sabbath. The Jews did not want anyone to be on the cross on the Sabbath. So these three men, these other two men were Jews also. It wasn't just any Sabbath, but more importantly, the Sabbath of the Passover. So right here, the hypocrisy continues that we've seen all throughout, well, since John. <laughs> it's just like all through it. So the high, the high day starts at sundown on Friday, and the Jews needed to speed things along so that the land not be defiled. They were keeping the law written by the lawgiver that they had just killed. The one that was able to keep the law, they killed him, and then they want to keep the law, which is ironic at best. In Deuteronomy 21, that's where we get this from, verses 22 and 23, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight, but you shall surely bury him in that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For who is hanged on a tree is a curse of God. So here, we learn Jesus was accursed of God and forsaken. So they asked that these legs be broken to hasten the deaths of these three men. And breaking the legs was, it brought on shock and, and excruciating pain. And it just hurried things along because what happens is they can't lift themselves up by their legs anymore and support themselves. So they would push up just to be able to breathe like this. And when you can't push up no more, your lungs collapse. You die of asphyxiation. If they'd been hung by their arms only, it would have been way quicker. They broke the legs of the two thieves and they came to Jesus. They found that he was already dead. So these Roman soldiers, they're experts in death. They know when somebody's dead because they kill a lot of people. It was their business. Some, some skeptics want to argue that Jesus really wasn't dead. He was in the tomb, and he was just kind of out of it in the, the cool air. Uh, he was allowed to rest and, and was revived, and it's simply not true. 
in Mark 15, when Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, Pilate first was, he, he was marveled that, that Jesus was still was dead so soon. And, and he, was, he was somewhat skeptical, so he asked the centurion if this was true. The centurion confirmed it, and then he released the body. And by giving his own life, this ensured the Roman soldiers were fulfilling even more prophecy in his death. I mean, as we've been going through uh, John 19, it's just prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. In the, in the Passover re- regulations of Exodus 12, verse 46, speaking of the, the Passover, the lamb, that none of its bones should be broken. So they didn't break his legs because this prophecy was being fulfilled. It was providential. From his multiple beatings unto his death, none of his bones broken. Numbers 9.12 reiterates this, that none of its, his bones would be broken. Psalm 34 19 and 20 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them all. He guards all of his bones, and not one of them is broken. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. This perfect, spotless, unbroken lamb. He's the final and ultimate sacrifice. He's the final Passover, the ultimate Passover lamb. And then now one of the soldiers pierces his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Another aspect of his death that's a lot of, it's brought about another prophetic fulfillment. In Zechariah says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on the, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve him as one grieves for a firstborn. The fact that it says they look upon him whom they have pierced means he is God incarnate. He is Christ. Zechariah saw Jerusalem's rejection of his own ministry and the greater rejection of the coming Messiah. He prophesied Christ's death and and the preaching of the cross to bring repentance and faith to God's people. This includes a, a spirit of grace and mercy that when they look upon him whom they were pierced, they shall mourn. This is the message of a cross that was preached 550 years before the crucifixion. This was A.D. 518 to 20, so in 30-some years of Christ's life. It puts it about 550 years before it happened. On to Zechariah 13, verse 1, it said, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanliness. That saving grace would flow from Jesus' death being preached. We are cleansed by sin from the blood. The blood which flowed from him that was pierced. Here we have grace established in verse 9 of chapter 13. I will bring one third. Oh, that's in John chapter 13, I'm sorry. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say that they are my people and they are my God. On this day, John recorded the flow of the blood. In the water. Zechariah foretold it. 
both preaching the cross. It's all about the cross. The gospel is being preached and believed. All that look upon him who, will mourn, will, who is pierced will mourn. Some will mourn their sin and be forgiven, cleansed and restored to God for eternal life. That's the believer. The unbeliever will mourn the eternal destruction, and both will see the one whom they have pierced. In the song, there is a fountain. It's an interesting story. I'm going to read this. It was written by the English poet William Cowper. By all accounts, Cowper possessed a sensitive, even fragile disposition, and his mother's death, when he was six years old, left him mentally unstable, frequently battling depression. He sought to protect himself by staying busy and keeping his mind diverted. A crisis came, however, when both his mother and step- father and stepmother died, and then his closest friend was drowned. The result was a mental and emotional collapse so that Cowper ended up in an insane asylum. At length, he was entrusted to the care of a Christian man, and it was during that time that Cowper came to grasp the meaning of the gospel and the knowledge that Christ had died for him. Cowper's breakthrough reveals an awareness of the stream of grace that flows through the scripture and comes to us by the wounds of Christ, which he grasped while reading Romans 3, 24 and 25. Paul writes that sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. Cowper relates immediately, I received strength to believe it in the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, and my pardon was sealed in his blood. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Before long, Cowper was able to leave the asylum, his heart cleansed by the fountain of Christ's blood. Throughout his life, his mental struggles would continue. He even attempted suicide at various times, yet it was the gospel that led him through the most difficult life, with light piercing the darkness of his soul. Many of his hymns remain popular still, with such titles as God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and oh, for a closer walk with God. But the hymn which Cowper is best known for gives his testimony to the cleansing blood of Christ, recounting how burdened his heart was set free on that day when the blood of Christ was shed for us. We sing that song often. G. Campbell Morgan writes, By the way of, of that cross... And by that way alone, God may be just, that is true to himself in nature and justify the sinner that has placed man in the position of one whom sin is made not. And who therefore is clear from guilt. Thus we have foregathered on the deep sea of sorrow through which the God-man wrought with God, though for a little while in separation from the Consciousness of his presence, a redemption which meets all difficulties, sorrows, and problems and opens the kingdom to all believers. So here is God is just and the justifier through Christ. Through this temporary separation where his wrath was poured out on the Son, we are redeemed. 
And it begs the question, all for what? This is no greater love. The crucifixion was the pinnacle of his glory. This is where he was redeeming his people. He was paying the price. He was gathering his bride at this point. The height of his glory was redirected at us, sinful man, and we were brought into the fold. We become the bride of Christ. We're forgiven. When God looks upon us, he sees only the clothing that his, his son had on. We're clothed in righteousness at this point. The pinnacle, pinnacle of his glory is redirected at us, his children, those that would believe. The, the physiological explanation of the blood and water has been widely discussed. Um, some say that it was heart failure because he was, was retaining water. Uh, and then others would say, well, that couldn't happen. If he was pierced, it would fill up his chest cavity. I don't think it really matters. One commentator said that if he had still been alive, that only blood would have come out. I'm not a doctor. We have enough nurses in here that could probably help us out with, the, with that. The point is the blood shed was signifying death. And the water, we know, is signifying, is more evidence of that death. The cause was still sin. The point John is making is that he, in fact, died. That's the point. really no other explanation or, or John would have explained it where he, where he explains the prophecies right here but he'd, he would have explained the significance of blood and water if there was any more than, than that the blood is easily explained in that Christ was the Passover lamb the lamb of God John 129 says Peter links the lamb without defect from Exodus 12:5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. And we'll go to First Peter here. And read what he says. First Peter 1, 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. For he indeed was foredained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The one free from sin, Hebrews 4.15 says, is Christ, the sinless lamb perfect spotless lamb that was unbroken unblemished in the first Passover the blood from the spotless lamb which was taken by slitting the throat of that lamb was sprinkled around the doorpost the door frame I guess now the angel of death would pass over that household when, the, when God was killing the firstborn children of Egypt you would see the blood and pass over 
And after that night, God commanded the Israelites to observe a Passover feast as a lasting memorial. Christ is the the Passover lamb. We are are sprinkled by his blood in his death. And the judgment of God passes over us. That's the Passover. That's the new covenant. That song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It is finished, he says. Remember back in verse 30? If you're Armenian, I guess it's mostly finished. But it is finished, complete. The new covenant established completely in the body and the blood. Isaiah 53. I remember the first time I read Isaiah 53. I was so taken back by it. I was a young believer. I couldn't wait to get back to work because I worked with a a pastor. You've heard me mention Don the Baptist. I I couldn't wait to tell him about Isaiah 53, and he just smiled. and He's like, ah, you found a nugget. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. More prophecy fulfilled. Spotless lamb beaten. Battered for us. John in verse 35, backing up a little bit, says, We've seen and testified which is true. We know that he is telling the truth so that we may believe. Again, the whole purpose of John's gospel is that we may believe. It's likely that John was the only disciple at the crucifixion. Nobody else is recorded as being there. He'd be the only one to witness it firsthand. Rest likely hiding. You saw where Peter cowered earlier. So now that he's dead, a secret disciple emerges. Comes out of the woodwork. Joseph of Arimathea. He asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Pilate obliges after a brief deliberation to make sure he was dead as we went over. Now, Joseph was a rich man, according to Matthew 27. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, Mark 15. He disagreed with the decision that, and was awaiting the Messiah himself in Luke 23. Luke 23 also says that he was a good and righteous man. John 12 John tells us that some of the rulers believed in Jesus, but out, not, but out of fear they did not confess him because they loved the praise of men more. Before you get down on the closet Christians there, I think most of us can agree we've been there. But they became brave when they saw the, the Messiah. 
hanging on the cross. He just died, blood, water flowing from his side. He had just been pierced. Courage immediately entered them. So Christ is not only fully in control of his death, but also his burial. And so how do these men get this courage? If you just saw someone that you cared for die, allegedly, for the kingdom, where does this courage come from? So Christ, controlling the circumstances of his burial, he's dead, but alive in the spirit. He'd seen this prophecy fulfilled in the last hours of life, but there's still more. In Isaiah 53, again, sorry, we should have stayed there, right? And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich man his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was handed over to a rich man in his death. Now the Romans, they didn't bury people that were crucified. It was to shame them. It's so everybody could look at them and say, I probably shouldn't do what they did. That's the most humiliating, painful death that you could experience. And then not only that, they just left them there to be eaten by scavengers, vultures, and what have you. Ultimate humiliation. Now, the Jews, they didn't refuse burial to anyone, but they, they buried criminals outside of Jerusalem. So then how was he buried with a rich man? His family wasn't, or buried, I guess buried as a rich man would be a better, better way to word it. His family was not wealthy. None of the, the apostles were wealthy, and they were hiding. But again, he alive in the spirit, moved in the heart of Joseph. And Joseph, by exposing himself, especially now, put himself in a lot, of, a lot of danger. He was, he was one of the top dogs in the the Sanhedrin. He was like Paul, a Jew of the Jews, rich, had everything to lose. Even more danger by approaching Pilate and asking for the body. Providentially. Pilate agrees to let him have the body of Christ. Then we have Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Comes to assist Joseph in preparing the body for burial. Says Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. About 100 pounds. One commentator says in today's weight that's 65 pounds. I don't know how that came about. but Either way, the amount, the amount was the amount that would be used to bury a wealthy person, or a king. Myrrh was a fragrant resin that was often mixed with aloes made from sandalwood. The rich man mustered up this courage through the Spirit of God to bury their king. And in the burial, they they sprinkled the 
aloe on the strips of cloth that he would be wrapped in, and then they placed more under the body after it was placed in the tomb. And no one really expected him to rise from the dead, or they likely wouldn't have done this. They wouldn't have prepared him like this. But it's providential once again. He's getting a king's burial, for he was a king. Then we learn nearby Joseph had a tomb, Matthew 27. It was in a garden close by. It hadn't been used. It was getting late. And they had to bury him before sundown because the Sabbath starts at sundown. And I've heard it said that some people think that Jesus died on a Wednesday because of the three days thing. That would mean the Sabbath would be on Thursday. So that's blown out of the water at that point. And Joseph and Nicodemus were motivated to do this quickly because of that Sabbath. It was fastly approaching. The the more significant reason is for this expedition. We find in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So that's where you get the three nights, right? So the the people that would argue the Wednesday crucifixion, you've got Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. Wait a minute. Anyway, it's wrong. It's wrong. Just don't even... Can't even count on my fingers today. But the Jews counted any part of a day as a day, right? He was in the tomb for three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Part of Friday, all of Saturday, Sunday morning. He had orchestrated his own death and his burial. We we remember that he has the power to lay down his life and take it up again. And soon we will see the final part of his orchestration and his resurrection when he is resurrected. And Christ transforms this instrument of death, the cross, into a symbol of power and glory. This thing that we look upon with such just awe was a tool that was used to kill people. Not just kill them, but torture them while they were dying. And at this time, we're going to move into our communion.